Hello, my friends. This is your Definitely Storytime host, Jamie. And if you're here, it's Definitely Storytime. So let's settle in and get comfortable, or whatever it is you prefer doing while you listen. And let's begin. We are reading Edgar Allan Poe's Part 1 The Pit and the Pendulum Impia tortorum longus hic turba furoris sanguinis inacui non satiata aluit suspita nunc patria fracto nunc funeris antro Mors ubi dira fruit, vita salusque patent. Quatrain composed for the gates of a market to be erected upon the site of the Jacobin Clubhouse at Paris. I was sick, sick unto death with that long agony. And when they at length unbound me, and I was permitted to sit, I felt that my senses were leaving me. The sentence, the dread sentence of death, was the last of distinct accentuation which reached my ears. After that, the sound of inquisitorial voices seemed merged in one dreamy, indeterminate hum. It conveyed to my soul the idea of revolution perhaps from its association, in fancy, with the burr of a mill-wheel. This only for a brief period, for presently I heard no more. Yet for a while I saw, but with how terrible an exaggeration, I saw the lips of the black-robed judges. They appeared to me white, whiter than the sheet upon which I traced these words, and thin even to grotesqueness. Thin, with the intensity of their expression of firmness, of immovable resolution, of stern contempt of human torture. I saw that the decrees of what to me was fate were still issuing from those lips. I saw them writhe with a deadly locution. I saw them fashion the syllables of my name, and I shuddered because no sound succeeded. I saw, too, for a few moments of delirious horror, the soft and nearly imperceptible waving of the sable draperies which enwrapped the walls of the apartment, and then my vision fell upon the seven tall candles upon the table. At first they wore the aspect of charity, and seemed white, slender angels who would save me. But then, all at once, there came a most deadly nausea over my spirit, and I felt every fiber in my frame thrill, as if I had touched the wire of a galvanic battery, while the angel forms became meaningless specters with heads of flame, and I saw that from them there would be no help. And then there stole into my fancy, like a rich musical note, the thought of what sweet rest must be in the grave. The thought came gently and stealthily, and it seemed long before it attained full appreciation. 
but just as my spirit came at length properly to feel and entertain it, the figures of the judges vanished, as if magically, from before me. The tall candles sank into nothingness. Their flames went out utterly. The blackness of darkness supervened. All sensations appeared swallowed up in a mad rushing descent, as of the soul into Hades. Then silence and stillness and night were the universe. I had swooned, but still will not say that all of consciousness was lost. What of it there remained, I will not attempt to define or even to describe. Yet all was not lost. In the deepest slumber, no. In delirium, no. In a swoon, no. In death, no. Even in the grave, all is not lost. Else there is no immortality for man. Arousing from the most profound of slumbers, we break the gossamer web of some dream. Yet, in a second afterward, so frail may that web have been, we remember not that we have dreamed. In the return to life from the swoon, there are two stages. First, that of the sense of mental or spiritual. Secondly, that of the sense of physical existence. It seems probable that if, upon reaching the second stage, we could recall the impressions of the first, we should find these impressions eloquent in memories of the gulf beyond. And that gulf is... What? How at least shall we distinguish its shadows from those of the tomb? But if the impressions of what I have termed the first stage are not, at will, recalled, yet after long interval, do they not come unbidden while we marvel whence they come? He who has never swooned is not he who finds strange palaces and wildly familiar faces in coals that glow, is not he who beholds floating in mid-air the sad visions that the many may not view, is not he who ponders over the perfume of some novel flower, is not he whose brain grows bewildered with the meaning of some musical cadence which has never before arrested his attention. Amid frequent and thoughtful endeavors to remember, amid earnest struggles to regather some token of the state of seeming nothingness into which my soul had lapsed, there have been moments when I have dreamed of success. There have been brief, very brief periods when I have conjured up remembrances which the lucid reason of a later epoch assures me could have had reference only to that condition of seeming unconsciousness. These shadows of memory tell, indistinctly, of tall figures that lifted and bore me in silence down, down, still down, till a hideous dizziness oppressed me at the mere idea of the interminableness of the descent. They tell also of a vague horror at my heart on account of that heart's unnatural stillness. Then comes a sense of sudden motionlessness throughout all things, as if those who bore me, a ghastly train, had outrun in their descent the limits of the limitless and paused from the wearisomeness of their toil. After this I call to mind flatness and dampness, and then all is madness, the madness of a memory which busies itself among forbidden things. Very suddenly, 
there came back to my soul motion and sound, the tumultuous motion of the heart, and, in my ears, the sound of its beating. Then a pause in which all is blank. Then again sound and motion and touch, a tingling sensation pervading my frame. Then the mere consciousness of existence, without thought, a condition which lasted long, then very suddenly thought, and shuddering terror and earnest endeavor to comprehend my true state, then a strong desire to lapse into insensibility, then a rushing revival of soul and a successful effort to move, and now a full memory of the trial, of the judges, of the sable draperies, of the sentence, of the sickness, of the swoon, then entire forgetfulness of all that followed, of all that a later day and much earnestness of endeavor have enabled me vaguely to recall. So far I had not opened my eyes. I felt that I lay upon my back, unbound. I reached out my hand, and it fell heavily upon something damp and hard. There I suffered it to remain for many minutes while I strove to imagine where and what I could be. I longed, yet dared not, to employ my vision. I dreaded the first glance at objects around me. It was not that I feared to look upon things horrible, but that I grew aghast lest there should be nothing to see. At length, with a wild desperation at heart, I quickly unclosed my eyes. My worst thoughts, then were confirmed. The blackness of eternal night encompassed me. I struggled for breath. The intensity of the darkness seemed to oppress and stifle me. The atmosphere was intolerably close. I still lay quietly and made effort to exercise my reason. I brought to mind the inquisitorial proceedings and attempted from that point to deduce my real condition. The sentence had passed, and it appeared to me that a very long interval of time had since elapsed. Yet not for a moment did I suppose myself actually dead. Such a supposition notwithstanding, what we read in fiction, is altogether inconsistent with real existence. But where and in what state was I? The condemned to death, I knew, perished usually at the auto da fesse, and one of these had been held on the very night of the day of my trial. Had I been remanded to my dungeon to await the next sacrifice, which would not take place for many months? This I at once saw could not be victims had been in immediate demand. Moreover, my dungeon, as well as all the condemned cells at Toledo, had stone floors and light and was not altogether excluded. A fearful idea now suddenly drove the blood in torrents upon my heart, and for a brief period I once more relapsed into insensibility. Upon recovering, I at once started to my feet, trembling convulsively in every fiber. I thrust my arms wildly above and around me in all direction. I felt nothing, yet dreaded to move a step lest I should be impeded by the walls 
of a tomb. Perspiration burst from every pore and stood in cold, big beads upon my forehead. The agony of suspense grew at length intolerable, and I cautiously moved forward with my arms extended and my eyes straining from their sockets in the hope of catching some faint ray of light. I proceeded for many paces, but still all was blackness and vacancy. I breathed more freely. It seemed evident that mine was not, at least, the most hideous of fates. And now, as I still continued to step cautiously onward, there came, thronging upon my recollection, a thousand vague rumors of the horrors of Toledo. Of the dungeons there had been strange things narrated, fables I had always deemed them, but yet strange and too ghastly to repeat save in a whisper. Was I left to perish of starvation in this subterranean world of darkness? Or what fate, perhaps even more fearful, awaited me? That the result would be death, and a death of more than customary bitterness, I knew too well the character of my judges to doubt. The mode and the hour were all that occupied or distracted me. My outstretched hands at length encountered some solid obstruction. It was a wall, seemingly of stone masonry, very smooth, slimy, and cold. I followed it up, stepping with all the careful distrust with which certain antique narratives had inspired me. This process, however, afforded me no means of ascertaining the dimensions of my dungeon, as I might make its circuit and return to the point whence I set out without being aware of the fact. So perfectly uniform seemed the wall. I therefore sought the knife which had been in my pocket when led into the inquisitorial chamber, but it was gone. My clothes had been exchanged for a wrapper of coarse serge. I had thought of forcing the blade in some minute crevice of the masonry so as to identify my point of departure. The difficulty, nevertheless, was but trivial. Although, in the disorder of my fancy, it seemed at first insuperable, I tore a part of the hem from the robe and placed the fragment at full length and at right angles to the wall. In groping my way around the prison, I could not fail to encounter this rag upon completing the circuit. So, at least, I thought but I had not counted upon the extent of the dungeon or upon my own weakness. The ground was moist and slippery. I staggered onward for some time when I stumbled and fell. My excessive fatigue induced me to remain prostrate, and sleep soon overtook me as I lay. Upon awakening and stretching forth an arm, I found beside me a loaf and a pitcher with water. I was too much exhausted to reflect upon this circumstance, but ate and drank with avidity. Shortly afterward I resumed my tour around the prison, and with much toil came at last upon the fragment of the surge. Up to the period when I fell I had counted fifty-two paces, and upon resuming my walk I had counted forty-eight more when I arrived at the rag. There were in all a hundred paces, and, admitting two paces to the yard, 
I presumed the dungeon to be fifty yards in circuit. I had met, however, with many angles in the wall, and thus I could form no guess at the shape of the vault, for a vault I could not help supposing it to be. I had little object, certainly no hope, in these researches, but a vague curiosity prompted me to continue them. Quitting the wall, I resolved to cross the area of the enclosure. At first, I proceeded with extreme caution, for the floor, although seemingly of solid material, was treacherous with slime. At length, however, I took courage and did not hesitate to step firmly, endeavoring to cross in as direct a line as possible. I had advanced some ten or twelve paces in this manner, when the remnant of the torn hem of my robe became entangled between my legs. I stepped on it and fell violently on my face. In the confusion attending my fall, I did not immediately apprehend a somewhat startling circumstance, which yet, in a few seconds afterward, and while I still lay prostrate, arrested my attention. It was this. My chin rested upon the floor of the prison, but my lips and the upper portion of my head, although seemingly at a less elevation than the chin, touched nothing. At the same time, my forehead seemed bathed in a clammy vapor, and the peculiar smell of decayed fungus arose to my nostrils. I put forward my arm and shuddered to find that I had fallen at the very brink of a circular pit, whose extent, of course, I had no means of ascertaining at the moment. Groping about the masonry, just below the margin, I succeeded in dislodging a small fragment and let it fall into the abyss. For many seconds I hearkened to its reverberations as it dashed against the sides of the chasm in its descent. At length, there was a sullen plunge into water, succeeded by loud echoes. At the same moment there came a sound resembling the quick opening and as rapid closing of a door overhead, while a faint gleam of light flashed suddenly through the gloom and as suddenly faded away. I saw clearly the doom which had been prepared for me and congratulated myself upon the timely accident by which I had escaped. Another step before my fall and the world had seen me no more, and the death just avoided was of that very character which I had regarded as fabulous and frivolous in the tales respecting the Inquisition. To the victims of its tyranny, there was the choice of death with its direst physical agonies or death with its most hideous moral horrors. I had been reserved for the latter. By long suffering, my nerves had been unstrung until I trembled at the sound of my own voice and had become in every respect a fitting subject for the species of torture which awaited me. Shaking in every limb, I groped my way back to the wall, resolving there to perish rather than risk the terrors of the wells, of which my imagination now pictured many in various positions about the dungeon. In other conditions of mind, I might have had courage to end my misery at once by a plunge into one of these abysses. 
But now I was the veriest of cowards. Neither could I forget what I had read of these pits, that this sudden extinction of life formed no part of their most horrible plan. Agitation of spirit kept me awake for many long hours, but at length I again slumbered. Upon arousing, I found by my side, as before, a loaf and a pitcher of water. A burning thirst consumed me, and I emptied the vessel at a draught. It must have been drugged, for scarcely had I drunk before I became irresistibly drowsy. A deep sleep fell upon me, a sleep like that of death. How long it lasted, of course, I know not. But when, once again, I unclosed my eyes, the objects around me were visible by a wild, sulfurous luster, the origin of what I could not at first determine. I was enabled to see the extent and aspect of the prison. In its size, I had been greatly mistaken. The whole circuit of its walls did not exceed twenty-five yards. For some minutes this fact occasioned me a world of vain trouble. Vain indeed, for what could be of less importance under the terrible circumstances which environed me than the mere dimensions of my dungeon? But my soul took a wild interest in trifles, and I busied myself in endeavors to account for the error I had committed in my measurement. The truth at length flashed upon me. In my first attempt at exploration, I had counted fifty-two paces up to the period when I fell. I must then have been within a pace or two of the fragment of surge. In fact, I had nearly performed the circuit of the vault. I then slept, and upon waking, I must have returned upon my steps, thus supposing the circuit nearly double what it actually was. My confusion of mind prevented me from observing that I began my tour with the wall to the left and ended it with the wall to the right. I had been deceived, too, in respect to the shape of the enclosure. In feeling my way, I had found many angles and thus deduced an idea of great irregularity. So potent is the effect of total darkness upon one arousing from lethargy or sleep. The angles were simply those of a few slight depressions or niches at odd intervals. The general shape of the prison was square. What I had taken for masonry seemed now to be iron or some other metal, in huge plates whose sutures or joins occasioned the depression. The entire surface of this metallic enclosure was rudely daubed in all the hideous and repulsive devices to which the charnel superstition of the monks has given rise. The figures of fiends in aspects of menace, with skeleton forms, and other more really fearful images overspread and disfigured the walls. I observed that the outlines of these monstrosities were sufficiently distinct but that the colors seemed faded and blurred, as if from the effects of a damp atmosphere. I now noticed the floor, too, which was of stone. In the center yawned the circular pit from whose jaws I had escaped, but it was the only one in the dungeon. All this I saw indistinctly, and by much effort, for my personal condition had been greatly changed during slumber. 
I now lay on my back and at full length on a species of low framework of wood. To this I was securely bound by a long strap resembling a surcingle. It passed in many convolutions about my limbs and body, leaving at liberty only my head and my left arm to such extent that I could, by dint of much exertion, supply myself with food from an earthen dish which lay by my side on the floor. I saw to my horror that the pitcher had been removed. I say to my horror, for I was consumed with intolerable thirst. This thirst it appeared to be the design of my persecutors to stimulate, for the food in the dish was meat pungently seasoned. Looking upward, I surveyed the ceiling of my prison. It was some thirty or forty feet overhead and constructed much as the side walls. In one of its panels, a very singular figure riveted my whole attention. It was the painted figure of time, as he is commonly represented, save that, in lieu of a scythe, he held what, at a casual glance, I supposed to be the pictured image of a huge pendulum, such as we see on antique clocks. There was something, however, in the appearance of this machine which caused me to regard it more attentively. While I gazed directly upward at it, for its position was immediately over my own, I fancied that I saw it in motion. In an instant afterward the fancy was confirmed. Its sweep was brief, and of course, slow. I watched it for some minutes, somewhat in fear, but more in wonder. Wearied at length with observing its dull movement, I turned my eyes upon the other objects in the cell. A slight noise attracted my notice, and, looking to the floor, I saw several enormous rats traversing it. They had issued from the well which lay just within view to my right. Even then, while I gazed, they came up in troops hurriedly, with ravenous eyes, allured by the scent of the meat. From this it required much effort and attention to scare them away. It might have been half an hour, perhaps even an hour, for I could take but imperfect note of time, before I again cast my eyes upward. What I then saw confounded and amazed me. The sweep of the pendulum had increased in extent by nearly a yard. As a natural consequence, its velocity was also much greater. But what mainly disturbed me was the idea that it had perceptibly descended. I now observed, with what horror it is needless to say, that its nether extremity was formed of a crescent of glittering steel about a foot in length from horn to horn, the horns upward, and the under edge evidently as keen as that of a razor. Like a razor also, it seemed massy and heavy, tapering from the edge into a solid and broad structure above. It was appended to a weighty rod of brass, and the whole hissed as it swung through the air. I could no longer doubt the doom prepared for me by monkish ingenuity and torture. My cognizance of the pit had become known to the inquisitorial agents, 
the pit whose horrors had been destined for so bold a recusant as myself. The pit, typical of hell and regarded by rumor as the ultima thule of all their punishments. The plunge into this pit I had avoided by the merest of accidents. And I knew that surprise, or entrapment into torment, formed an important portion of all the grotesquerie of these dungeon deaths. Having failed to fall, it was no part of the demon plan to hurl me into the abyss, and thus, there being no alternative, a different and a milder destruction awaited me. Milder, I half smiled in my agony as I thought of such application of such a term. What boots it to tell of the long, long hours of horror more than mortal, during which I counted the rushing oscillations of the steel? Inch by inch, line by line, with a descent only appreciable at intervals that seemed ages. Down and still down it came. And that has been our episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I hope you'll consider telling your friends and family and, if you have the means, providing listener support. I also have a Patreon, and I have merchandise available on Teespring. Links are on the homepage. I thank you for choosing Definitely Storytime.